0: I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is Hashtag Hashtag History. History, the podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike.
1: Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hey, this is Hashtag History episode 23. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And we are unintentionally sticking with the theme of poisoning carried over from last week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> really, truly, that was not on purpose. I have actually been wanting to talk about this particular topic for ages now. This episode has been in the preliminary map outs that we have done for the last two seasons, but it just kept getting replaced by other topics. There's
0: just too much good
1: stuff to talk about. There's too much good stuff. And, like, pretty much all the way up until the season that we're about to record, do I, like, finalize the list? It, like, moves around so much. Like, anyway, it's finally happening, guys. We're finally talking about this particular case, and it just so happened to fall back-to-back with another poisoning episode. So... What can I say?
0: An alleged poisoning.
1: Alleged No, it absolutely was a poisoning. (laughs) If you haven't listened to it yet, make sure you listen to last week's episode. And make sure you let us know what you think. Was the co-founder of Stanford University poisoned, or was she just fat? (laughs) You tell us. So wrong. (laughs) But today, we are talking about the 1982 Tylenol poisoning. From September through October of 1982, Seven people died in Chicago, Illinois, as a result of drug tampering of Tylenol-labeled pills that had been laced with potassium cyanide, beginning with the death of a 12-year-old girl. To this day, no one has ever been charged with the crime. Leah, have you ever heard of the 1982 Tylenol poisoning?
0: I had. I didn't know that it was in Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> um But, uh, yes, I have heard of it. I heard it had, like, a lot of effects, and I'm sure we'll dig into that on the, like, drug industry and stuff.
1: Why I had heard of it before, other than just being, like, a history nerd and being really into this kind of stuff, um, my dad, actually, he was in his early 20s when this incident happened. So I asked him about it, and he very distinctly remembers it. He was like, oh, yeah, I remember when all the Tylenol – products were being pulled from the shelves of the stores and they had to do like a mass recall on all bottles that have been produced in the last eight months and it had I mean a big effect on him. My dad um turned sixty this year and he still very, very distinctly remembers this whole incident. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about. So we're gonna go ahead and do our drinks. And um, Leah, since you put these together, I am hoping that you have not laced them with <laughs> poisoning. So I mean,
0: <laughs> you watched me do it, but I mean, who knows? So this week we're traveling to Chai Town, USA. Woo! Come travel with us. Actually, I'm going to Chicago. Yes, you are you in know, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. Something know. like that. Which for the first time, I'm excited.
1: Okay. When will this come out? Oh, my God. Good point. The, like, Good point. when I'm in Chicago. I think you're right. It's coming out the second week of February. You'll be in Chicago when this episode comes out. <gasps> How That's exciting! exciting. <laughs> That's life, exciting. Life is
0: weird. It's weird. <laughs> okay. That's cool. So, this week's cocktail is the aptly named Chicago Cocktail. Love it. <laughs> That's so original. <laughs> so original. <laughs> Since, you know, this stuff happened in Chicago, which I didn't know. Yes. Yay, Correlation. Got it.
1: And Correlation, you're going to be there when this episode uh, this, comes out. How
0: cool is like, that? Like, it's crazy. I love it. Okay. Love it. I didn't do this on purpose.
1: Yeah, neither did I.
0: Um, the Chicago cocktail is a brandy-based mixed drink, probably named for the city of Chicago, but there isn't necessarily proof of that. Mm. mm. It has been documented in numerous cocktail manuals dating back to the 19th century. So at least it's going to um it's got some history behind it. Okay. Unlike some of our other <laughs> cocktails, um Chicago restaurant critic John Drury Included it in his 1931 guide, wow. Dining in Chicago, noting, wow. yeah, that's cool. Noting that it had been served at the American Bar in Nice and the Embassy Club in London. So it very was, cool. Yes, very a world-travelled cocktail. <laughs> um, the ingredients include a shot of brandy, three dashes of triple sec. Or any other like um, orange liqueur kind of thing, um, ice, and then two dashes of bitters. You shake all that up and pour over ice, and then top with champagne. I'm skeptical.
1: Yeah, it looks weird. It you, as you said, it looks like honey. Yeah, the color, color. Yeah, the
0: coloring is like honey
1: or amber. I was really excited about this one because I do like champagne. Um, it smells but, weird, but it smells weird. And then like when you were putting it together it, I mean, it just. Looks interesting.
0: We've both are, I'm sure I've had brandy sometime in my life, but we both are not very familiar with brandy, so yeah. I actually don't know what brandy or what this particular brandy tastes like. Yeah. So it's just all a shot in the dark for us.
1: Yeah, 100%. Let's do it. Okay.
0: <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's a little weird. Oh, she doesn't like it. Look at her face.
1: <laughs> Look at her face. Our <laughs> listeners um, it tastes I what I like, I like champagne, it has a very strong champagne taste, don't you think?
0: Well I probably put more champagne than the than we were supposed for. to. Yeah it's
1: very it's like it's like everything about it is champagne except for like a small bit. <laughs> I <don't> know, like <laughs> it tastes 90 percent like champagne and then you're like, oh, there's something else in here too. Is it something is that other something not good? I think that's how I feel. Okay. I think this is not my favorite. And by not my favorite, I think I don't like it. Yeah. But it tastes enough like champagne that, of course, I'm going to finish it.
0: Yeah. Uh, and are we? Yes. That was going to be my question. Are we going to finish it even though we don't love it? Always. Why is that even a question? That's It's
1: not. Okay. So
0: <laughs> So we're continuing to drink it. Um, I don't hate it,
1: yeah. to be honest. Mm. I'm going to put it all the way down at like a three. Oh. Like that's how I feel about That's it.
0: rough.
1: <laughs> you don't feel that way. You don't feel that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I could. Uh, yes. No. Yes. A four. It's
1: somewhere between Mine's a, a three, three and a six. Oh, my God. That's a wide That's range. That's a wide
0: range. <laughs> I'm, I, it's a l- big net. And I don't know what I'm going to catch with it. But Mine's
1: a solid three. But I do have to finish it since I'm driving home after this. So. <laughs> yeah, you got to finish it fast. Soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this story It all began on September 29th, 1982 in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, Mm. when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up and complained to her parents about having a cold. Her parents gave her an extra-strength Tylenol pill. She died only hours later. Yes. The other victims were as follows. 27-year-old Adam Janis of Arlington Heights, Illinois, who took a Tylenol tablet, was taken to the hospital when he felt like shit, and then died there. Adam's brother, Stanley, who was 25, and his sister-in-law, Teresa, who was only 19, also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle that Adam had. Obviously, they hadn't made the correlation that that's what had happened. I'm assuming that this whole family just was feeling really awful. um, And so they had all decided to take painkillers. Both Stanley and Teresa died as a result of taking that Tylenol. Mm. Mary McFarland, who was 31 years old, died a few days after the first deaths, and then she was followed shortly thereafter by 35-year-old Paula Prince and 27-year-old Mary Rayner. When these pills were later tested, it was determined that each pill was laced with enough cyanide to administer thousands of fatal doses. Can you even possibly imagine the horrific deaths that these people experienced? (sighs) The chief doctor of critical care at the Northwest Community Hospital in Illinois was quoted as saying, the victims never had a chance. Death was certain within minutes. That's devastating. It's horrible. That's another thing we say a lot. It's devastating. Because a lot of what we talk about is really awful. It really is. Is there anything like any uh, uplifting stories in history? Let's make it a, let's, let's make a commitment to do some happy. An uplifting. Historical. One uplifting episode a season. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shit. Now I, have to <laughs> now I have to change the lineup of this season. <laughs> oh, sorry, but
0: we got it. We got it. No, I'm with you. Yeah.
1: I'm with you. <laughs> and now here I go to talk about death.
0: <laughs> Continuing on.
1: All of these deaths were extremely suspicious right off the bat. From 12 to 37 years old, all of these people died way too soon slash way too long before their natural time. Once it was determined what each of these individuals had in common was that they had ingested Tylenol within hours preceding their deaths, authorities were quickly notified. I think one of the first things one could suspect is that the problem originated from the manufacturer. The problem with this theory is that these bottles of Tylenol had come from various pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Additionally, all of these incidents occurred in Chicago. What would the actual odds be that a singular manufacturer that mass produces and distributes substances on a global scale would end up with the fatal batches all within a fairly narrow mile radius? There's no, there's no way. Yeah, it's not actually possible. So authorities knew right away that this was not a manufacturer issue. It was determined pretty early on that this wasn't some sophisticated conspiracy. Rather, it was handled on a very small, very local level. Authorities believe that whomever was responsible for this outbreak of fatal pills was someone that had gone into different stores, taken the bottles from the shelves, placed cyanide in the capsules, and then returned the bottles back to the store shelves. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of what the Tylenol capsules used to look like so that you can describe them for listeners. Okay. I, I feel like I've probably seen this before, but it's I'm been sure a you long have. time. It's
0: oh my gosh. I don't the, small the picture was. Okay. I'm zooming Especially since my eyes are like crap right now. Zoom, zoom, zoom. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so Tylenol and yeah, a lot of pills are like this, but they're the capsules. So it's like a a ingestible shell with the powder inside. Yeah, and so it's red, red and white with the powder. The drugs are a powder inside a shell.
1: Exactly, and so the main thing with how these were created then is like they could quite literally just be popped open. Yeah. Like the powder was inside, like you said, a shell. Yes. So you could just pop them open.
0: And so so you were saying they're they thinking someone took it off the shelf, took it home, tampered with it, and then put it back. And then exactly. went back to that store.
1: That's exactly what the presumption was, was that the killer had popped open the capsules, injected the cyanide, and then resealed them, put them back on the shelves. Okay. Well, Yeah. <sighs> In response to the seven deaths, there was a nationwide recall made on all Tylenol products, which, which resulted in 31 million bottles being halted from production and distribution. This was a huge financial move. 31 million bottles of Tylenol is the equivalent in today's money as a loss of $265 million to the Johnson & Johnson company. But
0: I mean, like, okay, $265 million versus the who knows how flipping much like you're gonna lose in lawsuits of oh. people that are being murdered or yes. killed.
1: agreed. We'll talk about this more later. But I think it's still like huge. Oh yeah, that that was something that they decided to do to instantly like pull these items off the shelves, because um, companies don't do that kind yeah. of stuff anymore. You know yeah. what I mean? They they were obviously very concerned right away. We need to get these pills off the shelves, even if it's a two hundred sixty five million dollar loss for our company. Yeah,
0: go John, go JJ, go JJ Johnson.
1: Go JJ, Prior to the 1982 incidents, Tylenol supplied 35% of over-the-counter pain medication. Following the incidents, that dropped to less than 8%. The PR regarding the dangers of Tylenol were so major that not only did the manufacturer remove Tylenol ads from mainstream media so there were no more commercials about Tylenol, there were even Chicago police officers that would go through the streets over loudspeakers, repeating over and over to the public to not ingest any Tylenol products. I feel like there's better way to get in contact with people. But in, uh, yeah, in the, 80s, in the 80s? it's not like it's not like today though. Like today, we all get those like emergency quick notifications. Emergency notifications on our phones. At this time in the early 80s, they would literally go door to door, knock on people's doors, and inspect their medicine cabinets to see if they had Tylenol. If they did, the cops would personally dump them. Crazy, right? I mean, it's just such a different time. Yeah. That's only, well, I was about to say 20 years ago. I guess it's 30 years ago that, now. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I always
0: think of the 80s as 20 years ago. Because it, it was. was not, it was.
1: <laughs> but, but 10 it years ago. Yeah. No, more than 10 years ago even worse there were copycat attempts at the poisonings hundreds of them so what the actual f is wrong with people that's icky the u.s food and drug administration estimated that there were more than 270 different copycat attempts in the months to years following the 1982 poisonings there were approximately three more deaths as a result of these copycat attempts which three deaths is an absolute tragedy But nothing quite reached the caliber that the 1982 poisoning did. Mm -hmm. Of course, what people want to know is who this sicko was and who did this. We still, to this day, do not know. They still have never pinned it on someone. The number one suspect, still to this day, is a man by the name of James William Lewis. Before we go any further, Leah, let's be super judgmental and look at a picture of him and just call it like it is. First thing that comes to your mind? Love
0: it. I mean, that's what we do. Oh, just- creepy, <laughs> creepy. He looks like um, a mix between Charles Manson yeah. and the Unabomber. I am so glad you said that. If that's not him, if that's not their love child, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs>
1: I'm so glad he said that because he is like major Ted Kaczynski, Unabomber vibes for me too. Which isn't too far off since, in only just 2011, the FBI actually tested DNA samples from Kaczynski to see if he could have been involved in the 1982 Tylenol poisonings. It's not too far off to think that he could have been involved.
0: I know you've told me a million times, but what's the documentary I need to watch about the Unabomber? Oh
1: my god, it's so good! What is it called?
0: I've literally I've looked for it and I can't find it, and I keep meaning to ask you. Is it just Unabomber?
1: Is it actually just, it, it? It our listeners, I'm looking it up right now. I am not playing. This is one of the best um, shows I've ever seen.
0: I like. I there's times when I'm like I need to watch the show. She's, Manhunt. Oh. Oh. Okay. It is,
1: I have now watched it twice, which is kind of saying a lot for me. Pretty much like when I watch something like, okay, I saw it, I'm done. I've watched um, Manhunt on Netflix twice. And then I've also watched the O.J. Simpson one three times. So.
0: Manhunt, Unabomber. So, oh, want it's a Sam. Yes. Okay.
1: And he's fantastic. Okay. It's so good. But yes, back to the Tylenol poisonings. It. Kind of follows Kaczynski's MO, the elusive, mysterious, mass murders, and they all occurred in Chicago, which was where Kaczynski's parents lived at the time. Oh. But nothing came from those DNA samples. Okay. But you can rest assured that your initial reactions to Lewis's photo were valid, Leah. Thank you. He was a weirdo. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) At the time that he was suspected in the Tylenol poisonings, It was found that Lewis had previously been charged in a 1978 murder case in which authorities found the remains of one of his tax clients in his attic. How did he not get charged with that? He did not get charged with that because the presiding judge ruled that the search of Lewis's house that had resulted in the discovery of those remains had been illegal.
0: What the flip? He's still, there's still a dead person in
1: someone's clinic. it It was, that search was illegal, so that was thrown out of the case. So then what proof do they have that he's involved at all Okay, in that person's...
0: I need to know more.
1: It's crazy, right? No, I
0: need to know more. Like, why did he, what, what? What are the motives? Because no, because no, he's a murderer.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed. His
0: client—it's not some rando person that's been dead for a hundred years. A client of his. Yeah, he was
1: a tax consultant, and his client goes missing and is found in his attic. And yeah, his remains are found in his what
0: attic. What the? F- I don't even. That's not. That's not a thing that happens anymore, right? It's crazy, like, right? If, if, if your if your remains were found in my attic, I hope I get arrested. I do too.
1: <laughs> I hope something happens. Even if the search
0: was illegal.
1: (laughs) It's crazy, right? But if you watch, speaking of that Manhunt show, if you watch that, Ted Kaczynski does everything he can to prove that the search warrant of his cabin was illegal. And if if he had been able to prove that it was illegal, the whole case would have been gone because it was what they found in his cabin that... Tied him to the crimes.
0: This is just a full-on forensic files episode. I
1: know. Okay, but why are we talking about James William Lewis in relation to the 1982 Tylenol poisonings? And why did he become and still is the number one suspect? Because he's the creepiest guy in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> just pull up their list of like who are the creepiest men that live within a 10-mile radius. <laughs> <sighs> That would be because in October of 1982, so just a month after the initial attacks, Lewis freaking sent a letter to the Johnson & Johnson Company, the manufacturer of Tylenol products, demanding $1 million. The letter stated that if they gave him a $1 million, he would stop the Tylenol murders. And he, like, signed it? In addition to that, The freaking idiot left his fingerprints on the envelope that he used to mail the letter to Johnson & Johnson. (sighs) Not everyone's as smart as us when it comes to planning murders. Right. (laughs) I have to keep that in mind. (sighs) Lewis and his wife lived in New York, though, and the police were never able to officially pin the crimes on him. He has continued to be under suspicion, though. As recent as 2009 authorities were searching his home to collect evidence and the department of justice later stated that they were confident that Lewis committed the murders. But again, we don't officially know this and we still don't know what evidence they actually have to pin him to the crimes with the exception of that letter. Perhaps he was just a crazy money hungry psychopath that was hoping he could make a million dollars off of the tragic deaths of the innocent people. He did serve 13 years in prison for extortion, though. So there's that. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. But Lewis went on to write a book that he published in 2010 titled Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma, which is a fictional novel about random people being poisoned. What
0: the flip is.
1: Yeah. So this whole episode is actually just a showcase of how bloody freaking awful people are. So, I mean, what is actually wrong with him? I want to,
0: um, when we're done, can we watch like an interview? I'm sure there's some interview. I actually never
1: watched one and I would love to. Like I want to see his,
0: his, his like demeanor. Demeanor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And hear his voice. Yeah. I'm with it. Okay. You can find that book on Amazon now for a steep $20. I like
0: how we think $20 is steep for a book. For
1: a book (laughs) it (laughs) is. It is.
0: I mean, I buy books for like $2 on like, uh, what is it? A A books. books. Thank you. Yes.
1: I also saw on Amazon that his book has received five ratings and is currently ranked 2.5 stars out of five. I love that. So there's that. I and like, love that. Most of the reviews are like, wait, isn't this the killer? Or like, isn't this, isn't this guy a killer? Yeah. Authorities continue to search for the killer. Are you familiar with who John Douglas is, Leah? Sounds so familiar. Yeah, I'm confident that you know who he is, even if you don't realize you know who he is. Okay. John Douglas is the infamous FBI profiler that the Netflix show Mindhunter is. And have you watched Mindhunter? No,
0: Nico watches (gasps) it. So I've seen like certain episodes and bits and pieces of it. So yeah. So good. It's based on him. So
1: good. Alex has read at least three of John Douglas's books. And this guy's mind is creepily fascinating. Mm. Not Alex's mind. John Douglas's mind. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Douglas could profile a suspect down to what freaking outfit the suspect would be wearing when they were apprehended. Like literally, Alex, I haven't read the book, but Alex told me an example of like, John Douglas telling the FBI, when you find this guy, he's going to be wearing a pink baseball cap and sunglasses. Like, I can guarantee it. I know this suspect so well. I profiled him to a T. I can tell you, That's free How? He Science. Is a, well, he's just <laughs> obsessed with these people that he profiles. He knows everything about them. It's so fascinating. Like you'll see in the Mindhunter show. If you guys watch it, here's another plug for another Netflix show. It's so good. Yeah, we're... <sighs>
0: Wow, plugging
1: Netflix it in sponsor there. sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, right, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in that Mindhunter show, you'll see Douglas traveled the world to study and interview serial killers behind bars so that he could garner research and understanding about the way that a criminal's mind works. He interviewed people like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, Ed Kemper, and so many more. John Wayne Gacy's the clown, right? Yes. Okay and then who's ed kemper ed kemper was um he killed a bunch of people he he was creepy because um he was huge that's what was creepy about him (laughs) no but i'm being serious look look up look up ed kemper right now all right all right just super tall um big dude And the thing about Ed Kemper was he was so willing to talk to the media. He kind of posed as like a – there we go. I just looked him up. His height, 6'9". He's huge. He was 6'9". But he looks
0: normal. He was
1: 6'9". That's the thing. He was – he had like a super high intellect. His IQ was like way up there. And he would hang out with like cops. He kind of identified himself as – even though he wasn't a cop – And so cops just saw him as, like, an annoying guy that would, like, hang out with them at the bars and try (laughs) to pretend like he was one of them. But he's actually killing people. Okay. But the thing about Ed Kemper, why he's such a fascinating person is because he was such a, like, talkative person. He was so willing to... Just tell. I know. It's so cute. it's it's so loud. you hear
0: purring, it's my cat in the background. It's really cute.
1: Um... (laughs) ed kemper i mean just completely opened up his mind and how he felt and why he did what he did which a lot of serial killers don't do that
0: there's one that i feel like was oh no who, who was it who? who am i thinking of where they were just like oh yes and that's when i slid her throat it was just hmm, who am
1: i thinking of you're thinking of btk you're thinking of dennis raider is that the guy that eats people you're thinking of um the guy that eats people the japanese guy no, no, you're thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, okay. I think you're thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer. That sounds familiar. Is that so bad that I can just pull all these off the top of my head? <laughs> it's really I bad. I think you're thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer. Anyways. Catch our um, true crime podcast oh, yes. coming out next. <laughs> in, in, actually, this is a true crime podcast. So.
0: It really is. It's it's a true crime podcast disguised as a history podcast. <laughs> yes dressed up as a history podcast
1: (laughs) anyway so why are we talking about john douglas other than the fact that i'm obsessed with him and will use any excuse to talk about him it's because the fbi enlisted douglas to help them in catching the 1982 tylenol poisoning killer i'm surprised they haven't
0: caught him or her
1: right so douglas had a theory that the tylenol killer and that's the name that i've Given this person that's what i'm using okay anyway douglas had a theory that the tylenol killer was one that would want to see the destruction that they had caused kind of like how the unabomber like returning to the scene to of the bombings to see the destruction Mm -hmm. douglas thought that the tylenol killer might have the same motivations so at his urging the chicago tribune published an article that revealed the address and grave location of the very first victim who was also the youngest 12-year-old Mary Kellerman. Following the publication of this information, the FBI had 24-hour surveillance on this site for months, but the killer never appeared. It's like, what a bummer, plus also what a horrifically boring job for those investigators that were, like, assigned to that task, right? Like, I mean,
0: we were just talking about last night how I'd be down for a boring job. I, We were just talking about that.
1: Sometimes, I mean, it's like...
0: I'd be down for, like, being able to just read and eat a sandwich.
1: (laughs) But get paid for your 40-hour week. Yeah, Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so let's get to the good part of the story, assuming that there can be any good in this whole story. Johnson & Johnson has long been hailed as the MVP in this whole scenario. Their immediate response to the disaster was not the financial hits that they were about to take or the poor publicity – Their primary concern was consumer safety and putting a halt to these horrific deaths. There actually was an article written by the Washington Post in which they stated that Johnson & Johnson has effectively demonstrated how a major business ought to handle a disaster. Johnson & Johnson was instrumental in ensuring that all bottles were pulled from the store shelves throughout the United States. They offered a reward to anyone that had any information about the murders. They even offered replacement pills to anyone that had bought bottles that had to be recalled. They offered to replace them with tablets as opposed to capsules, which obviously, you know, they give that appearance of being less likely to have been tampered with.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, and I, I'm sh- like, you're literally saying all this, but like, I've he- only ever heard good things about Johnson & Johnson that they actually like care about. Yeah. Like, they're, I know they're, an, they're a company, their whole thing is to make money, but like that they actually
1: care about people
0: care
1: about i i mean i do i really think it's huge that they're very which is sad that we're even saying like they made the right move obviously this is the right move yes. like people are being killed by your it's not your fault but people are being killed by your products and you made the right move by pulling them from the shelves immediately yeah without the consideration of like shit this is going to cost us so much money yeah Um, Johnson & Johnson, they also established relationships with the various agencies investigating the case, such as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FBI, and the local police department. In researching for this episode, I came across an article written by Clyde Haberman for the New York Times in which he did a comparison of the way Johnson & Johnson responded to this incident versus the way more modern companies, such as Facebook or Equifax, respond to public scrutiny in Haberman's article. He mentioned how Equifax in particular neglected to mention to the public for months that a hacker had gained personal data for millions of its customers.
0: Did you, were you hit by that? Yes. That's what I was just
1: going to say to you. You remember early last year? Yeah. Okay. So early last year, um, I was getting all these calls from all of these banks and stuff saying like, Hey, we received your application for this credit card. Mm. Like, remember this? I've
0: never followed up with you on this. It's,
1: Everything is fine. Okay. But yes, um, it was horrible. It was a week before I left for London. Oh, that's right. It was horrible. The week before I left for London, um, I was getting all of these calls about all these credit cards that I had supposedly applied for because someone had my full name, my address, my family's addresses, my social security number, all of that. I was beating myself up because this also happened um at the same time that i was moving from one place to another and i knew that i had thrown i was moving from an out of an apartment complex and i knew i had thrown a bunch of stuff in the dumpster where i was like
0: there's probably your
1: social exact i just remember like uh, maybe there were a few things in there that i maybe shouldn't have thrown in there maybe they had too much information so i was beating myself up because this incident literally happened like a week after i moved Ended up finding out months and months and months later that Equifax, they sent me an email and said, like, hey, you were compromised in our, like, hacker. It's like things I know. Yes. I'm aware. Well, like, now, like, thank you, Equifax. Now I don't feel like shit about myself that it was your fault and not mine. Yeah. But the point of this article that the New York Times put together is that places like Equifax don't they don't admit to their faults right away or like Facebook. There was that huge story only um, a couple years ago in 2016, when Trump won the presidential administration, how Facebook Mark Zuckerberg basically won him the administration by raising that two hundred and fifty million dollars in campaign funding. But he denied this for months. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of for corporations to learn from how Johnson & Johnson immediately responded to the 1982 Tylenol poisonings. True that. The one other positive thing to come from this tragedy were the huge changes made in pharmaceutics. You know how annoyed we can get by medicine bottles when you can't get the freaking pop-up cap off? Yeah, especially in the middle of
0: the night when you're like (laughs) half asleep. Yes. And you just can't.
1: Yes, and then once you actually get... The cap off, there's still always that little like foil covering.
0: <laughs> Which, like, who actually peels it off?
1: <laughs> and we, like, we all just poke a hole in it. You just poke a out. hole in it. Correct. <laughs> so, this is super annoying when all of these things, you know, especially when they say they're like child proof, but it's actually like adult proof too. <laughs> but anyway. This right here, this case is the reason why. The 1982 Tylenol poisoning is the reason why we have all of these obnoxious but secure methods now. Johnson & Johnson, and then eventually every pharmaceutical company in the nation, adopted not only the foil covers, which would instantly reveal if someone had tampered with the product, and not only the hard AF to open bottles, Mm -hmm. but they also developed caplets, which are what we take today They look like capsules, but they are all one piece that cannot be broken apart in the way that old capsules were constructed. Within only a year of these tragedies, the FDA adopted regulations in relation to consumer product tampering. They made it not only illegal, but also very, very expensive with the imposing of fines for anyone that ever does tamper with a consumer product. And this is one thing that I really love about history, seeing the way that tragedies or mistakes lead to change how we can learn from what went wrong, and learn how we can grow and improve. That is maybe one of my favorite things about history. Definitely. Now, I realize that this episode was pretty depressing, especially since we just covered a poisoning last week as well.
0: I feel like the whole <laughs> first three episodes, which just we all recorded today and are a little tipsy from
1: it, <laughs> are all downers. They're all
0: downers. Yeah.
1: And while I cannot promise that next week's episode will be any more uplifting... In fact, next week's episode is an exceptionally devastating and violent episode. I can guarantee you that we have concluded our series on poisonings for this season anyway. For now. For now. (laughs) you guys so much for listening to this episode of hashtag history we will post the pictures from this episode to our instagram and all sources used to put this episode together can be found on our website if you enjoyed the episode do this dude, dude dude's, dude's. Do us this. do this a favor and subscribe to hashtag history on whatever podcast platform you use share it with a friend and give us a rate and review and dudes <laughs>
0: be sure to check us out dudes on instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast dude. thanks dude thanks dudes bye bye <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think one of the first things one could su- suspect is that the person Ugh, start that again <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's a, a thing on this side that you can tighten. Nope, one back. Nope, nope. Keep going. Keep going. This way. Boom. Tighten that. I think that. does that do it my way? Just tighten all. Ah. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay, where was I? It's 40 years! It's like Wait. 50 years! Wait, it's no. not 50. No, I you can't just... do that. Some oh champagne, God. and this is the first episode we're recording.
1: Today. But we can say, like I said at the beginning of the episode, my dad is sixty this year, yeah, and he was twenty-two when this happened. Okay, so it is forty years. That's
0: crazy.
1: That's crazy. Yeah.
0: We're yeah, like, we're like, oh yeah, boy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Oh, like yeah. Uh,
0: Minnesota. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Don't okay. channel. Don't
1: don't
0: channel. <laughs> Nico and I literally sometimes before bed, and you'll you'll get this when you watch the movie, please watch it. Um, he'll be like I'll be like love ya norm and he'll be like love ya barb or whatever they say. <laughs> and like we'll just randomly out of nowhere be it. like love ya norm. That's really cute. I love it. <laughs>